a thoughtful framework for ethical fundraising. Hi, I'm Bill Stanjakevich. This is the first day from the Fundraising School, and I'm joined today by Dr. Lauren Taylor. Lauren is assistant professor at the NYU Grossman School of Medicine, and she has done considerable research into the ethics of fundraising. And Lauren, thanks so much for being with us on the Fundraising School's First Day podcast. Totally my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Bill. Why is somebody in a medical school researching ethics and fundraising? What led you to this topic? Well, I wasn't always at a medical school, is the truth. Oh. So I um, have always been in healthcare, adjacent to healthcare, but I spent eight years in graduate school <laughs> before taking this job at NYU Grossman, and none of it was at a medical school. So I was three years training as a chaplain at Harvard's Divinity School, and then five years getting my PhD in health management at a business school. And so, you know, initially my interest came from a number of case examples that were healthcare-ish, you know, the Sacklers of Purdue Pharma being a very high profile example. There have been others. When I was in Boston, Jeffrey Epstein's name was in a number of high profile places as well. And so I just had the degrees of freedom to take up this question that I really found compelling and hard. I always like to say that at the start. It's not as if I study the ethics of this stuff because I think, oh, people make a big deal out of it. But like, come on, guys, it's so easy and straightforward. <laughs> the reason I invest time in it because is because I find it really a difficult question and a difficult set of questions. And um, I was able to take it up kind of broadly asking how nonprofits should think about dirty money or tainted money, uh, just because when I was writing my dissertation, which this was part of, I was at a business school. And so that felt like the right kind of unit of analysis. And now I'm at a medical school and sort of trying to tailor some of these analyses and questions specifically for a health and science context. Um, but initially, I was just thinking across the board, nonprofits, what general principles, if any, can we derive? There are many aspects to ethical fundraising, perhaps none larger than this issue of tainted money. And some folks want to stay very far away and others. And you use this quote in your article in the Stanford Social Innovation Review. Some who say they're tainted enough of it, that they yeah. have a much more open view towards accepting donations that could be viewed by some as questionable. And Lauren, one of the themes that you invite nonprofits to think about is that donations actually are exchanges. Help our audience understand that perspective, please. Totally. So I think this is the key that unlocks a lot of new perspective for people. And it's somewhat counterintuitive because our language is misleading, right? We call it a donation, which I think for most people suggests a one-way transfer of resources. I donate something to you. That means I take clothes out of my closet or I take money out of my wallet and I send it to you. So if you think that way about kind of quote unquote dirty money, it leads you down a certain path of analysis that is, well, should nonprofits take on board something that is tainted or problematic? And that is one line of kind of analysis and questioning that is well-worn in the literature. And I'm happy to circle back and say why I find it sort of incomplete. Hmm. I try and say instead, no, 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 it's not just a donation. It's not just a one-way transfer of resources. It's an exchange, as you say. And so that leads you to the question of like, well, what are nonprofits giving in this whole scenario? And I call out two kind of general categories of things that nonprofits tend to give in return for a donation. And those are one, recognition. 
So, you know, I put up Bill's name on the honor roll in the lobby, or I publish your name in the annual report, or I name XYZ Corporation as kind of corporate citizen of the year at our annual gala, or I provide influence in return for a donation. So I can take someone who has donated money or other things and give them a seat on the board, or I can allow them to specify sometimes with great detail how that money is used. And so those two kind of big categories, recognition and influence, are what I try and kind of convince readers in the SSIR article are being given in return for the quote unquote donation. And what that does for the whole analysis is it just makes nonprofits a more active participant. So no longer do we sit back and say like, well, nonprofits, you know, what else are they going to do? They're not in a position really to turn it down. Instead, it says like, no, we have to kind of really take nonprofits as moral agents seriously and recognize both like the power they have in this um, arrangement and therefore the responsibility that goes with it. I'm not saying that there's equal power. You know, many times you have mega, mega donors who have a lot of money to throw around, potentially, you know, future changing money for a nonprofit. And the power can 100% be imbalanced, but it's not as if nonprofits are just inert receptacles of resources. They do have agency and we should take that seriously. Lauren, that's so well said and is highly consistent with our teaching at the fundraising school in all of our courses, especially principles and techniques of fundraising, where we teach that fundraising is a values exchange. Instead of the arrow pointing in one direction from the donor to the nonprofit, it's actually a donor pointing, uh, an arrow pointing in both directions to the nonprofit and to the donor that both are giving and receiving in not a transactional relationship. That would be one way, a transaction. The nonprofit receives the donation, but a transformational relationship that both parties are gaining and hopefully gaining in a way that benefits the cause being pursued by the nonprofit organization. And you give nonprofits some handles in terms of uh, starting with what are the potential benefits and what are the potential harms that could come across in this relationship? Could you expand on that, please? If we just return to the thinking about a one-way transfer for a moment to kind of finish the idea of why I think that's incomplete. My concern about quote unquote dirty money or tainted resources really is not the money. And I think people's intuition tracks with this. So if my concern was the money, then I could cook up different hypotheticals and people's intuition about them would be consistent. And yeah, I'm inviting kind of nonprofit managers to be maybe more reflective than they usually are about pros and cons, not only, again, of accepting this money, right? Because people have long had a sense like, oh, there might be reputational issues if we take this money into our own coffers. But to also say, what are the benefits and drawbacks of providing this donor with either influence or recognition? And the cost to those things you know, will probably be well known to your students, but you could think about some specifics like someone who comes to, let's say a clinic, a health clinic, the world I'm in, and they say, you know, I'm willing to make a quote unquote transformational gift. I'm willing to give you $5 million, big chunk of change for most clinics, but um, I'll only give it on the condition that you don't treat undocumented people. Uh, and the clinic is usually a place that serves many people who are undocumented. And so that's a question of 
not so much is the money they're giving bad or problematic. It might be, you know, made at Disney World. Like it might be from, you know, a place we consider completely unproblematic. But the conditions and what you would be giving to that donor in return, the influence to really shape the mission or the operational tenets of your establishment is where I start to say, oh, this is potentially problematic. And you can go through a similar logic with recognition, right? It, Jeffrey Epstein is the classic example and the one that's probably least controversial. When you give someone who has deeply problematic, particularly public profiles, kind of the benefit of being associated with a nonprofit in whatever way, you know, we just can't overlook the power that nonprofits have to cast a kind of halo effect or beneficent um, reputation upon people. And so if you'll remember kind of the, the MIT example with um, Jeffrey Epstein donating and there was a complex story, but one of the things that came out in retrospect was one of the leaders, the institutional leaders at MIT, when he came out and said, you know, I regret accepting this money. He said, one of the reasons he regretted it was because to kind of honor Jeffrey Epstein as a donor was potentially to really cause injury to victims of sexual harassment and sexual abuse. And so there he was calling into the kind of moral calculus, a set of players who are not typically there. You know, we usually think, okay, the ethical analysis is what are the pros and cons for my organization? And maybe, you know, as I'm trying to push us to do, what are the pros and cons by including the benefits and harms to the donor? But this MIT example was even going a little further and saying like, no, we really need to do like a 360 view on what the public impact of this gift would have. Um, and I thought that was actually quite prescient and insightful of that leader, even though he was coming forward to say, I think I made the wrong decision in the moment. So not just how this donation and exchange affects our nonprofit, but the cause at large, our community at large is something that nonprofits need to take into account. And Lauren, I'd like to make sure we introduce a point that you very clearly make. And then of course we teach at the fundraising school, you are aware and you make this point that donors give for a myriad of reasons. They may give uh, because it's tax season, not of their religious faith, they're a former participant, a family member benefited, and all sorts of many reasons why people donate. Uh, but you still see, even with all those myriad of reasons, that nonprofits can still use this influence and recognition framework to answer these ethical questions. Can you explain that for us, please? That's right. So I certainly don't want to make it seem as if everyone who donates to nonprofits has some kind of malicious agenda or has some kind of self-serving agenda mm -hmm, even. Mm -hmm. But I think the framework I put forward is sort of motive agnostic, right? So you and the nonprofit position do not have to go down the road of assessing, mm, like, why do I think this person is giving? Instead, what I'm suggesting is you ask yourself, what are the likely impacts of honoring this person publicly or giving them this kind of influence. And that does not have to be bound up in kind of Monday morning quarterbacking. What, what do I think the rationale for this gift was? Um, so I'm glad you raised that point because it is something I think both that is becomes really complex analytically from a scholarly perspective. And I know puts nonprofits practitioners into quite a state because they're like, well, how can I ever be expected to know the intent of any donor to say nothing of every donor who may be approaching me. 
And as we apply Lauren's excellent research at the fundraising school, you know, we want fundraisers to be aware of the many motivations why somebody might donate. In fact, fundraising is the gentle art of teaching the joy of giving. The art comes in in tailoring that conversation to that specific donor's philanthropic motivations. And what Lauren's pointing out here is, as we understand those, when we have these ethical considerations, we need to be thinking about what about influence? What about recognition that we're providing to this donor in this exchange relationship? Lauren is very much a pracademic. As you can see, she uh, is an expert researcher, but really cares about translating her findings to practical application. And we've already talked about you know, clarifying potential harms. Lauren talks about avoiding simplicity, also increasing internal communications as we think about these things. But also, Lauren, you emphasize that we need structural solutions. What are some of the types of structural solutions nonprofits could be thinking about? Sure. So I will caveat this by saying I know that it's a little far out, but often I talk to nonprofit uh, managers, leaders, and, you know, they're just filled with a sense of like, even with this framework, they say like, Lauren, it's just still so complicated, right? There's so much nuance in every case. And there could potentially be in any given year, you know, you're a big nonprofit, you could have five, 10 cases that rise to the level of like a board discussion, or at least a senior leadership discussion. And so sometimes people say to me, like, is there just any way to exit this discussion? Like, I do not want to be in the position of having to adjudicate the morality of donations um, at all. And is there a world in which that exists? So there is a world in which that exists. And I will tell you what I think that world looks like. It's often not the world that nonprofit managers want to live in, but here goes. So the way to get out of this entirely is to create what I call a structural solution. And it is to set up sort of a blind trust. A blind trust is a bank account that is operated and managed separately from the nonprofit. You could do this at your local bank. So think about a nonprofit that exists. Currently, you know, they've got a donate now um, button on their home webpage and they keep a ledger of, you know, Bill donated $200 on Tuesday. Mm -hmm. If you take that function out of the nonprofit entirely and you say, look, all donations to our nonprofit must go through this blind trust. What you're essentially doing is severing the relationship between nonprofits and donors. And you're saying as a nonprofit, I do not want to know. I don't want to know who gives. So you could have everything run through a blind trust. And the way that would work is, you know, on your website, you say, we only accept donations through this blind trust. Please click here. But it's managed by the local bank or an accounting firm. And people would make their donations. As usual, they could still probably get tax write-offs. And, you know, on a periodic basis, let's say once quarterly or however frequently you really want, the manager of that blind trust would transfer the money to you as a nonprofit, but would provide no information to you about who donated or how much. That cuts off your ability to do many of the things that are kind of part and parcel of fundraising, right? Write a kind of handwritten thank you note or send a little tchotchke in the mail. But from an ethical perspective, what it does is frees you to ensure that the nonprofit is neither providing influence nor recognition to any of the donors. So that is a structural solution. You set up a blind trust, you route all of your donations through there. I say people generally don't like it, A, because it's like a major shift in kind of what would your fundraising staff be doing and what does their work look like? Um, also because I don't, 
I don't have a number to put on it, but you know, most people's intuition is donations are going to fall. Are they going to fall 10%, 15%, 30%? I don't know. It would be an interesting kind of experiment. If there's a nonprofit out there that would like to do it, I would love to study it with you and we could know exactly what the experience is. Um, but in response to nonprofit managers and leaders who are just kind of exhausted by the moral calculus and the demandingness of these analyses, which, as I said, it's real. This is the way that you fully extract yourself from the conundrum. And with that proposal for a structural solution, we see that Dr. Lauren Taylor is a big thinker. And Lauren, I would not say naive, I would say provocative, something for us to think about. Uh, fundraisers, of course, want to maintain those long-term relationships with donors, and that would be the discussion that we would be having. Uh, at the fundraising school, we talk about a gift acceptance policy, and that can talk about will we accept stocks? If so, how? Land, items of valuable art? If so, how? Crypto? If so, how? Uh, planned gifts? And also, if we have an ethical dilemma, how will we handle that? Some nonprofits even go ahead and name names of people, corporations, and products. As you can see here, this also falls back to one of Lauren's recommendations, avoiding simplicity. This is work. And she gives us a good framework by thinking in terms of influence and recognition. Lauren, thanks so much for being with us on the Fundraising Schools podcast. It's my pleasure. Fun to talk about this stuff with you. Thanks, Bill. And at the Fundraising School, we like to say we don't teach fundraising. We teach ethical fundraising. Ethical discussions are embedded in each and every one of our public courses, uh, a couple of dozen courses leading to four different certificates. We also have our custom training uh, that is available in the United States and around the world for your nonprofit, your region, your association, and so forth. Our training is available in person or online. We have quarterly webinars. We have these free podcasts. Uh, and of course, our updated version of our textbook, Achieving Excellence in Fundraising, the fifth edition, which includes a chapter on ethics and again, has ethics embedded throughout each of the 39 chapters. All this information is available online at philanthropy.iupui.edu forward slash the fundraising school. Thanks again to our guest, Dr. Lauren Taylor. Our producers today are Mike Anthony and Jennifer Boffman. I'm Bill Stanjakevich, and now you are now more fully informed on this first day from the fundraising school. Thank you.